This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 is where we are going to be today. Uh, If you brought your own Bible with you, that's great. Uh, If you didn't and you would like to follow along, I encourage you to do that. You should see a hardback black one like this, not too far away from you in a seat back. And you're going to be looking for page 857, 857 for Acts chapter 4. As I mentioned at the opening of today's service, I think our passage today that God has brought us to in our study of the book of Acts does speak directly to some of the issues we're facing on the front of our minds this morning, both near and far. I'd like to ask you as I begin a question, or a few of them maybe. One question I'd like to ask you is, what do you expect to see in the world over the next 20 years? What are your expectations? What do you expect to happen among leading nations or to major populations or even to religious institutions? What are your expectations? What are your expectations of this local church? What do you expect will happen to this church or any other? And then finally, how should Christians aim to be faithful in their witness to Christ Regardless of what laws or societal expectations we might have, what what does faithfulness look like? Well, today we're going to come to a place in the Bible where we observe, read about and consider the very first act of Christian civil disobedience. And as I've already said, I think it's timely for us today. It's timely, especially because Christians in America and in the Western world more generally, I think seem to be losing some of the social and political capital that they or we once had. Now, uh, for those of you who know me, it will be of no surprise that I do not intend to speak about where America has been as a nation or where we are at the moment. I trust that many of you understand that my conviction on not making overt specifically political statements, uh, that this is uh, something you appreciate and not something uh, that you uh, dislike about me. But it isn't by accident, it's on purpose that I refrain from making such statements. You see, I believe what we do on Sunday mornings is meant to draw our attention toward Christ and not toward our particular national heritage. I believe it's good for us to focus on eternal and transcendent matters here. That's not to say that we there aren't implications for political or social conduct. There certainly are. But we should be reminded of what God has actually promised to do in the world. We should be reminded of what he's promised to do with and for his people and where he's promised to eventually take this whole thing. And that's where I often aim to keep my focus, especially on these Sundays. In Acts chapter 4, we see that not everyone was excited to hear Peter and John preach the gospel in Jerusalem in the first century. 
While many did respond with repentance and faith, as we see even in our passage this morning, many others were annoyed or grieved or even angry about what the apostles were preaching with regard to Jesus and about the people in the crowd themselves. Very often when worldly people hear a divine message revealing the truth of God, they don't like it and they even hate it. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 to 8 says such a thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, or chapter 2, verse 14. Frequently worldly people with worldly power oppose the message of the gospel. And they oppose the people who proclaim it. Because this is true, Christians of every age have had to face, to one degree or another, opposition in the world. Stories abound of Christian virtue and endurance, even in the face of horrific persecution. And so, too, do stories abound of corruption and tribalism and self-preservation among those who claim the name of Christ. Sometimes even opposing the very Christ and the very gospel they claim to love. In the real world, good guys and bad guys aren't always easy to spot. In the old westerns, it was very easy. Is their hat light or dark? Very often in watching some of the movies that come out today or television shows, my youngest Malachi, who's five, he'll ask me, Daddy, is that a good guy or a bad guy? Because he wants to know, should we be for him or against him? And I find myself frequently telling him, well, bud, sometimes he does good stuff and sometimes he does bad, just like you. And if we're honest with ourselves... This is true of all of us. But how then can we know if we're on God's side in any given moment? How can we know when to fight or when to stand down? How can we know when to submit or when to disobey? And what are we actually hoping to accomplish at the end of all of this? Well, with that as an introduction, let's turn our our attention to Acts chapter 4. And let's consider how this passage might help us to answer some of these questions. Would you stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 4? Standing is one of the ways we try to show respect for God's word. I'll start in verse 1 and I'll read down through verse 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. As we typically do on Sundays, this exposition, uh, the message that I'll be preaching is seeking to draw out from this passage what uh, Luke and God himself, as the authors of this storyline, intend to communicate to the readers. I'm hoping and aiming to do just that. What I'd like to try to point to is what I think is the main point of this section of the book of Acts, and that is that God is building his kingdom, which is immortal and made up of those who are united with Jesus Christ. So the main point I'll be aiming at today is that God is building his kingdom, which is immortal and made up of those who are united with Christ. For those who'd like to take notes, here are the three points that I'll make today. First, the state and religious opposition, looking at this opposition that John and Peter were facing here. Point number two will be the longest one. There'll be two more lengthy and more detailed pastoral applications today than normal. I'll ask you to bear with me then, but point number two is going to be the longer one, looking at this bold and faithful witness of both Peter and John. And then third and finally, the shortest point of all, the, uh, of all three of them today is that in Christ, God is building his kingdom. Well, with that, by way of introduction, let's open it up with point number one, the looking at the state and religious opposition that both Peter and John were facing on this day. Now, I'll explain it a bit further as we go along uh, understanding this passage. But the priests that we see listed there in verse one, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees who came upon Peter and John, they were an incredibly powerful bunch. This group represented the higher authorities described in verses 5 to 6, which again, we'll look at a bit more in just a minute. And these were both the religious and civil leaders in Jerusalem. In our common vernacular today, we, we might say that these were the leaders of both the church and the state. Throughout this passage, Luke is showing us, the reader, that the institutional leadership was staunchly, staunchly committed to opposing Jesus Christ and anyone else who would so foolishly associate with him. Right from the very beginning of Acts chapter 4, there is opposition against Christians coming from these authorities. Verse 2 tells us that they were annoyed or grieved or angry, depending on your translation, because of what the apostles were teaching. 
what they were teaching the people about Jesus, and particularly that they were proclaiming a promise of resurrection from the dead in Jesus. In their anger, we're told in verse 3, they arrested Peter and John and then held them in custody for the night. It's interesting to me that Luke still tells the reader of a huge response of repentance and faith on the part of those who heard the word. But let's stay on track with the opposition for now. There was no question among the leaders, this council that was formed the next day, that a genuine miracle had been performed. Down in verse 14, we read that they saw the man who was healed standing right there beside the apostles. And the leaders even said in verse 16, we cannot deny that a notable sign has been performed. But the one question the council of opposition had is there in verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? And when Peter said that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man was made well, there in verse 10, well, the council decided to charge the apostles not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's in verse 18. So the picture we get here is that the civil and religious authorities were willfully rejecting Jesus' authority and his gospel. The apostles had performed a genuine miracle. They were telling everyone that Jesus was the one who was doing this. And they were urging everyone to repent and to believe in Jesus as the Christ. But the rulers and elders and scribes and everyone among the priestly family in Jerusalem was opposed to the whole thing. And this was no different than the posture they had taken against Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, Luke wrote of a very similar encounter between Jesus and this exact same group of authorities in his gospel. Hold your finger there in Acts chapter 4 and flip to the left with me just a little to Luke chapter 20. If you're looking in one of those hardback black Bibles, it's on page 826, 826. Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1 and on down through a good portion of that chapter, again, we see the exact same group gathered. And Jesus, during his earthly ministry, is the one who's being questioned by them. Starting in verse 1, we read, On uh, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes, with the elders, note the exact same folks, came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Exact same situation, exact same confrontation. In Luke 20, Jesus answered their question with a question of his own. And when they refused to answer it, he told a parable which exposed the very heart of their opposition. Jesus explained with this parable that those folks hated God and they rejected his authority, thinking they could build their own kingdom and set up their own hierarchy. And when Jesus got to the punchline of this parable in verse 16 there of Luke chapter 20, he said that God would ultimately destroy those who opposed him. But the priests and the scribes and the elders rejected that claim too. And that's when Jesus cited the same psalm that Peter did in Acts chapter 4, Psalm 118, about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone. So it's the exact same scenario with the exact same exchange. 
We read in Luke chapter 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is on Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They knew what he meant, but they feared the people. Exact same setup. Now, my point in bringing this up here is that the opposition that we're seeing in Acts chapter 4 is exactly the same kind of opposition that Jesus already faced. The motives of the leaders were the same. They wanted to preserve their establishment. And their tactics were the same. They wanted to stop at nothing so long as they could keep the general population on their side. And these authorities did accomplish their goal, or so they thought, when they finally arrested Jesus and had him killed. But now, back in Acts chapter 4, in our passage, so flipping back there to Acts chapter 4 with me, they're facing down the same Jesus after his crucifixion, except it is in and through the apostles of the Lord Jesus, who are saying, we're still here. Jesus is the one who's still here doing all of this stuff. They're telling them the same message. And Jesus is working in and through them. But to Peter's point, and to Luke's as well, the reason that both Jesus and Peter cited Psalm 118 was to say that the psalmist's prophecy was being fulfilled right then. Jesus was and is the cornerstone or the head of the corner, verse 11 in Acts chapter 4. And Jesus was rejected by the very people who should have been the builders of God's kingdom in the world. And Jesus had become the very foundation upon which God was building a new kind of kingdom. No longer would the Mosaic covenantal priesthood and civil structure, which we recently studied as we looked at the book of Exodus, No longer would that be the basis upon which sinners would serve and worship God. No, when Jesus came, he made it clear that he alone would forevermore be the basis or ground of right relationship with the Father. Or as Peter put it in verse 12, salvation was then and is today in no one else but Jesus Christ. There is no other name given uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God was then and is offering now salvation, which is citizenship in a new kind of kingdom through faith or belief in the word about Jesus. Moving on to point number two, the bold and faithful witness. Now, remember that this encounter that we're focusing on today, that it happened just after the public miracle and gospel presentation we read about last Sunday in Acts chapter three. So it's still kind of part of that same scene. Before the apostles were brought before the authorities, they were following Christ's commission to be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem and then beyond. Now, the content and the focus of the apostolic witness was the message about Jesus, the gospel, with a special emphasis on what we see in verse two of our passage today, resurrection from the dead. Let me take just a moment to emphasize this promise, which is the chief or main promise of the gospel. Death was God's curse upon humanity from the time of the very first sin. Death is not the way that life is supposed to end, but it is our common experience now. The Bible never asks us to call death good or to pretend that death is just natural. It isn't. It's unnatural. It's horrible, and it's a painful reality. And death is not the only result of sin in the world. There is brokenness, there is dysfunction and wickedness of all sorts, but death 
is that undeniably obvious reminder that we all live in a world that is under curse, under God's curse. But the Bible teaches us that God has done something spectacular. God the Father sent his Son into the world, and God the Son willingly submitted himself to live under the curse as a real human man, Philippians 2. More than that, after Jesus died, redeeming sinners from the curse by becoming a curse himself, Galatians 3, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now, this is wonderful news. Someone actually came back from the dead. But it's only good news for me or you if we can also follow Jesus back up out of the grave ourselves. And that's exactly what Luke is telling us in shorthand that Peter was preaching and teaching about in Acts chapter 4. Look at it there in verse 2. Peter was proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That is, in Jesus Christ, others can experience resurrection from the dead as well. This is the promise of the gospel. Those who turn from sin and trust in Christ will still suffer pain and sorrow and even death, but they will one day live again. This promise is always relevant, but it's particularly gripping today. We felt the loss of two of our church members in just the last few weeks. James Luby died on August the 9th, and Kathy Ford died this past Friday. Many of us prayed for healing for both James and Kathy. And some of us might be tempted to think that somehow our prayers didn't work. Or that somehow God fell short at keeping some of his promises. But neither of those things are true. God is completely trustworthy. And our hope was never built on the idea that James or Kathy most certainly would not die. That wasn't our hope. Our hope was and is always built on the idea that even in death, these two saints are more than conquerors through Christ who loves them and who will resurrect their mortal bodies to immortality. One day very soon. God is building his kingdom and it is an immortal one. Where those who love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ will all share in everlasting life. And we must humbly respond to this good news in the same way that the folks did in our passage. With simple belief in the word. Trust the word. God's word. God's promise. But as we've noted already. Not everyone was glad to hear Peter's and John's message about resurrection in Jesus. And yet, Peter's witness amid the authorities was astonishingly bold. Let's look at it together. Look especially in verse 3 and kind of down the passage there. When Peter and John were arrested, they, they waited in custody until the next day, we're told in verse 3. That evening and morning gave time for word to spread and for a council of judges to form. We see that in verse 15. Now, in verses 5 and 6, we read that the council included rulers and elders and scribes, with Annas as high priest. 
Now, Annas wasn't technically the high priest at that time. In fact, his son-in-law Caiaphas was. And we can see that in Matthew 26 and also in John 18. Annas' service as high priest had ended at least 20 years before the confrontation in Acts 4. But he still carried so much weight among the temple's priestly uh, leaders, including Caiaphas, his son-in-law, that Luke simply says the quiet part out loud. For all intents and purposes, Annas was the high priest. Everybody listened to what he said. Besides all these, two other guys, one named John and the other named Alexander, they were also present. We don't know much about them, but we know that they were uh, uh, of the high priestly family there in verse 6. This was a gathering of leaders that we simply can't imagine with our 21st century minds. Try to think of a group of people who control the police, the legal courts, and all the churches. If they find you guilty of a crime, they not only have the power to kill you, but also to cut you off from God himself and from his people. We read in verse 7 that they, this council of, of, uh, of leaders, set Peter and John in the midst This was an incredibly intimidating situation. The language indicates something of like a semicircle of these kind of looking down on Peter and John who were there in the middle of them with the interrogation light shined on them. I have to tell you that it was somewhat hard for me to resist the urge to preach the whole sermon about this one feature of Acts chapter 4 this morning. But think with me for a moment about how significant this encounter must have been for Peter. What does this encounter say in Acts chapter 4 about the truth claims of Christianity and the power of the Holy Spirit that Peter, of all people, was set in the midst of this council and giving witness to Jesus Christ with such boldness? It was only about two, maybe three months earlier that Jesus himself was arrested and set in the midst of this exact same bunch. And while Jesus was being grilled by these guys, Peter, we're told in Matthew 26, 58, was following him at a distance, hoping that no one would recognize him. And then we're told that a little girl did recognize him. And Peter cursed himself and denied Christ. Now, after Jesus was brutally crucified, the only way to explain Peter's complete switch from horrified embarrassment to unrelenting boldness is that he had seen and heard that same Jesus raised from the dead. Again, comparing and contrasting this whole scene with the one described in Luke 22 or Matthew 26, it would be well worth our time to consider. And I commend that to your reading even maybe this afternoon. Luke Luke 22 and Matthew 26, contrasting and comparing the similarities and the difference in Peter's own experience. But we're told in Acts chapter 4 that it wasn't only Peter's experience of having seen the risen Savior. That was certainly a big deal. But there was something else that motivated his bold and faithful witness that day. And it was a special help from the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this way, God empowered him to speak with boldness and faithfulness. This filling of the Spirit of God was not the same as what happened at Pentecost. God's Spirit came to dwell permanently with His people in Acts chapter 2. And we'll see this reality unfold in more vibrant colors as the storyline of Acts continues. But when Peter was filled with the Spirit here, it was similar to what God had done with others. 
Say Bezalel, for example, giving him supernatural craftsmanship to build the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 31 and 35. Or with Joshua, giving him divine authority to lead Israel into the promised land, Numbers 27, Deuteronomy 34. Or with several others who judged or prophesied according to special revelation from God. Many times throughout the Old Testament we can see this. It's instructive for us today, though, to see that Peter's spirit-filled experience resulted in his bold proclamation of the gospel. Think about that. What did Peter do filled with the Holy Spirit? He preached the gospel with boldness. The Spirit did come upon Peter in a special way, but not for his own personal benefit. Not just an emotional high or a divine experience. Not even for his own ability to perform a miracle. He'd already done that in the name of Jesus. And as Jesus' own apostolic ambassador. No, this filling of the Holy Spirit caused Peter to respond to social, political, and even religious opposition with a courageous and true witness to Christ and his authority. It's also instructive, I think, for us today to think about exactly what Peter and the apostles were being charged to do or not do by their earthly authorities, and also to think on what specific point and with what posture they courageously disobeyed. Now, the council of the rulers and elders and scribes, along with all who were of the high priestly family, they had full authority over Peter and the other apostles. These were their earthly authorities. This council could throw them into jail. They could publish, pu- publicly punish them, beating or flogging them. And they could even hand down the death sentence, as they had done with Jesus just a few months back, this same group. What they did, this council, is charged Peter and the other apostles not to speak or teach at all, verse 18, in the name of Jesus. The command was clear. It was comprehensive. Don't teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. And it struck at the very heart of Christianity. Jesus had commanded his disciples to do the exact opposite. Jesus told them that they would be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus had told them in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, to make disciples by baptizing new converts and by teaching all that Christ had commanded. And this civil and religious body of leaders or officials demanded the opposite. In verses 19 and 20, we read Peter and John's answer. Now, we know what they should have said, but still that they said it on that day and in this way is incredible. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So just as clear as the municipal command was the response from these Christians. The apostles would not comply. They intended to obey God and not their earthly authorities. When the earthly authorities plainly opposed God. Friends, this touches on something that Christians in America are having a tough time figuring out. Throughout church history, Christians have had greater and lesser freedoms in whatever state or nation they've lived. Even now, Christians in the world face widely varying hostility or antagonism from others around them. 
Brothers and sisters, it's important for us to remember that opposition to Christianity is not new. Though some of us may feel like Christianity is losing ground in America, we do not need to fear anything that this nation or any other might do to oppose Christian teaching or living. Christ's church does not need the help or even the permission of earthly kings or presidents. Jesus is king over all kings, and he is Lord over all lords. His word and his kingdom, as the old song goes, are forever. But there is another aspect of this that I want to address this morning. As I said before, I don't often get this detailed in my pastoral application, so bear with me for a moment. And if this hits close to home, please do not imagine that I've been reading your mail or watching your social media accounts. You might also be helped to know that I prepared this manuscript last week. I was done completely before this morning, and so no conversation has affected it whatever. I've noticed a bad trend in one particular area that I think is a good example of what not to do in a whole bunch of other areas. And so I'm going to pick on it a little bit today. Since March of 2020, Christians have been trying to figure out how best to honor Christ and to love our fellow church members and neighbors and to be good citizens amid the COVID pandemic. Some Christians are convinced that the coronavirus must be avoided at nearly all costs. And they've argued that for love for neighbor and Christian witness demands a certain course of action. Some Christians are convinced that the coronavirus is horrible, but they're also pretty sure that there's nothing anyone can do to stop most people from contracting COVID sooner or later. And they've argued that love for neighbor and Christian witness requires another course of action. Now, I am not taking either one of those positions or anything in between this morning. Over the last 18 months, I and the other pastors, elders of this church family have aimed to lead this church well in taking what we have believed are appropriate precautions. And we have highly prioritized the gathering on the Lord's Day. At every step, I, we have urged humility and charity as we all take this pandemic one step at a time. And so far as I have observed, most of our church members have expressed love and patience toward one another. But, brothers and sisters, the heartburn comes not when we might disagree, but when we start thinking and talking as though our particular perspective on this whole thing is the Christian perspective. When we demand that other Christians come to our side of the table or else, we call them stupid or careless or unloving or gullible or sinful. Some of my Christian friends were glad to get the vaccine as soon as it was available. And some of my Christian friends don't ever want to get the vaccine. Some of my Christian friends wear masks almost everywhere. And some of my Christian friends don't wear them unless they absolutely must. Some of my Christian friends stay home a lot these days. And some of my Christian friends commute and travel freely. All of my Christian friends love Christ and love others. And none of them, I think, are aiming to dishonor Christ or hurt others with their actions. Now, brothers and sisters, we should learn about what our options are. 
We should understand the situation for what it is. We should consider biblical principles and try to apply them wisely. And we should talk about all this with fellow Christians, even with those who disagree with us, so that we will sharpen our understanding and improve our perspectives. But we must do this with humility and with charity. Peter and John made a big deal out of Christian doctrine in Acts chapter 4. They called out their fellow countrymen, and they even disobeyed governing authorities. But they did it on a point of essential Christian truth. Salvation, resurrection from the dead, is found in Jesus Christ alone. There are now, and there are sure to be, many practical applications of biblical truth where Christians have differing convictions. We must never go against our own consciences. But we must always have our consciences shaped by Scripture. And we ought never force our conscience or our convictions on someone else seeking to bind their consciences based on what we're convinced is a proper application of biblical truth. Anyone who studied the Bible knows that the Bible is clearer about some stuff than it is about others. And so we should see this civil disobedience on the part of Christians in Acts chapter 4 as an example to be followed, where they're making a big deal about the main things. God help us to boldly and faithfully keep the plain things, the main things. There are a lot of other questions we might have and a lot of other conversation we might have on that point. I'm going to leave it there. And if you want to talk more about that, I'd be so happy to do that at some other time. Point number three. In Christ, God is building his kingdom. In Christ, God is building his kingdom. This whole passage, it seems to me, is showing a move away from the Mosaic covenant and leadership, the, the Mosaic structure, to a new kind of kingdom. The priests of the old covenant temple were denying the mediator which they were meant to represent. And the elders and rulers were so corrupt in their distribution of justice that they only cared about protecting their own position. The new covenant in Jesus Christ is better than the old because the new covenant has a perfectly faithful high priest and a perfectly righteous ruler and king who never acts unjustly and always protects those under his care. The passage also shows us, as Luke does throughout the book of Acts, that God's new kind of kingdom simply cannot be hindered by worldly powers. The same bunch who tried to stop Jesus from accomplishing his earthly mission in his first advent couldn't stop Jesus from accomplishing his will through the disciples he commissioned to follow after him. Jesus came to bring his eternal and righteous kingdom into this world. And he began to do exactly that all those years ago. His kingdom is not bound by any borders, and it is spread into every land on earth. Jesus' kingdom does not die when one generation passes, but it carries on in the world, in the lives of those who love this king and who obey his commands. Jesus' kingdom is better than David's and Solomon's because Jesus' kingdom is made up of people and not bricks, and because it's ruled by one in whom both heaven and earth are united. Finally, Jesus' kingdom is the one that God himself is building, and this should produce in us, brothers and sisters, both humility and confidence. 
God is building his kingdom. And this should make us both humble and confident. We should be humble because God's the one doing the building. He doesn't need our help and he will decide best how and when to expand his kingdom. We should be confident because, brothers and sisters, God is building his kingdom. And the very stone that was rejected by the builders has indeed become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, Psalm 118. And nothing can thwart his plans, Job 42. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.